Welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. I actually, Professor Frederic Leroy um, has been on my list of people to get. For, there's a guy, can you remember who it was, Frederic, who recommended you? Somebody said you've got to get him on the podcast. It may have been David, no? I don't know. I, 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 I'm quite scatty. But anyway, I'm really, I'm really, really pleased to have you on the pod because you're going to talk about something slightly different from the usual fare. And yet I think everything connects. And I think that what's going on in, in the area you're about to talk about connects with the climate change scam, with the coronavirus scam. It's all part of a bigger, a bigger problem. So your special, just tell me a bit about yourself first, about your, about your academic background, and then we'll move right. we'll cut to the chase. Right. So I'm a, a food scientist. I'm a food scientist and technologist at Brussels University. So I study food and I happen to be, my expertise happens to be in um, the area of animal source foods. So meat in particular. So I've been looking at meat since I started my PhD, yeah. basically, as a meat scientist. And um, so rather, you know, technical research about quality and safety, but knowing how meat is produced, where it comes from, what it means for you know, nutritionally, what it means with respect to production systems is part of my background. Yeah. So I got, I got confronted with, with what happens in mass media and what happens at policy levels where meat suddenly becomes something that has to be reduced or eliminated. Yep. And I found that very interesting because I know where meat is coming from. I know what it means. I know what its implications are. And it just didn't make sense, scientifically speaking. And yet we see also that men, also within academia, many high profile scientists start to identify meat as something intrinsically problematic. Yeah. So I found that rather interesting, <clears throat> and that's why I also started to explore and um, and also broaden my expertise by working together with people from the humanities, so communication specialists and anthropologists, and um, trying to figure out what was going on because this was not normal. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Hearing you describe how you got where you are reminds me very much of, of Bjorn Lomborg, who I don't know whether you've read his book, The Skeptical Environmentalist. Yes, yes. But yes. he goes through a similar thing where he's 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 bought into all these environmental na- narratives. And then one day he decides to take his class and show him why climate skeptics are wrong and they're anti-science. And he realizes that the science does not support, the evidence does not support the uh, the case for climate change. And what, what you're saying, I, I, I suspect, is that the the narrative you read in the media that right. meat is bad for you that we've got to cut down has no scientific basis well there is a scientific basis there is a complicated scientific context but it's taken out of context and it's sloganized and it's reduced to to simple statements that don't make any sense so the science of let, let me be clear i mean there there is work in progress in agriculture right i mean animal source foods are produced according to certain systems and they need to be improved. I'm not saying everything is fine, mm-hmm. but the same is valid for the plant agriculture. We just have more and less sustainable systems and we need to work on them. Yeah. But trying to create this binary division that states that the plant foods are almost 
perfectly <laughs> benign for us, and then the other ones are almost intrinsically bad. That's not scientific. Yes. And the interesting part is that by by entering this debate through the the the, the the window of diet, let's say, you bump into the same, the exact same actors that you find in, in the climate debate and in the other debates. You, you bump into the same institutions, the same organizations. And um, one day I was reading the works of um, Corey Morningstar, who has been looking at the sustainable development part and how, how that is all shaped and controlled by, by certain you know, PR companies and, and, and transnational corporations and institutions. And she was mapping the network. So she was identifying and interrelating the different actors. And I was finding the exact same organizations as the ones that I was finding in my dietary explorations. So this means that something is going on at a more systemic level that is not only about the diet, but it, that's, it's about using the diet for transition schemes that some you know, architects are designing for us. Yeah. Let's, let, let's get there slowly because... Uh, okay, yes. um, Let's 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 go on the on the, on the kind of um, I always get my macrocosmic and um, microcosmic scales um, mixed up, but whatever it is, let's focus on the meat first of all and the diet. Now there are some things that everyone knows, every everyone knows because it's been rammed down their throats in the media uh, that too much red meat is bad for you. That, that that we must cut down on our meat because it's it's like we eat too much of it. Um, that what else? Meat gives you cancer. Um, yeah, and we've we that a plant based diet is is what we really should be aiming for because we can be just as healthy and 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 it's great. And you know why don't we all go? Well, we used to say vegan, but they they don't like that word. So let's all go plant based. Tell me, tell yeah. me, tell me where all this comes from. Well, I think that's it's interesting to ask two main questions here. So the two essential questions. The first one is, uh, why is it that uh, what used to be a, a, an anti-establishment movement and something in the margin of society, being vegetarianism, you know, it was, it was something that was in the margin of society. How is it possible that suddenly it becomes mainstream and that it's on top of that endorsed by, uh, by, by the highest institutions globally? How, is, how did that happen, first, first of all? Because if it's something that is really threatening and, and weird, uh, the powers that be will try to suppress it. They will not give it a platform. The only reason why it, it reaches the status of being all over the place and also, uh, also at, on the front pages of, of, of magazines and, and newspapers is because it, some vested interests think it's a good idea. Otherwise, it would not happen. Yeah. Dangerous ideas are suppressed; they're not given a platform, right? So that's something. That's something bizarre. <clears throat> the second question is: Why is it that the foods that have always been looked at as the, as the most valuable ones, animal source foods, uh, with all their symbolism and all their connotations of vitality and strength and uh, sensuality, why suddenly those ones turn out to be the worst for us in in a couple of you know a couple of decades that has flipped around? How is that possible? Something must be going on because this is contradicting our entire history as humans and the way we used to look at food. So how did that happen in such a short uh, window? Mm. So there are I dynamics at play that are clearly not just spontaneous or organic. I mean, this is not happening because of a spontaneous evolution within society. Something has been... Yeah, has been manipulated so that... Um, 
the public narrative has become something completely out of touch with the actual ideas and perceptions and, and notions that live within society. Because this people always sometimes make the mistake of thinking that plant-based is going global. It's not going global. What is, where is, it's going global in, in, in mass media and in policy documents, but it's not going global in the public. The public is not there. I mean, the public is not interested in going plant-based. Yeah. It's, it's only a niche within that public that, that endorses the, the transition. Most of people are not. But yet, that's what we see at uh, that's what we see amplified in in this course. So that's I was, an interesting contrast. I was nodding there when you said, like like I knew knew this, but I didn't know this. Where you said that the public is not going along with this plant based thing. Is that right? Do we have evidence to show that that the propaganda? Well, we we, what we see that the consumption patterns are not really affected all that much. What happened is that people have have shifted their uh, meat intake from mostly uh you know what whatever was red meat is is shifting towards poultry that that's that's a that's a, yeah. a trend within the west and, and maybe globally as well poultry goes up but it's not that total meat consumption is decreasing or falling it decreases a little bit but not substantially right. and 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 even the 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 plant-based market is a very small market it's it's increasing rapidly if you look at the percentages but that's because you start from a low base and it's and, and, and those numbers are increasing rapidly, but as a substantial total amount, it's not really very meaningful. Yes. I, um, I had a, a, a medical treatment um, a, a few years ago, which where it was suggested that, that to help me have a sort of low inflammation diet, I should go vegan for, I think, yeah. three months. <clears throat> and it was the three most miserable months of eating I've ever spent in my life. And, and, at the same time, I read in the newspapers, I mean, it was just when you started getting loads of articles saying plant-based and, and there were these kind of groovy young kids who, who did this plant-based cookbook that everyone was getting. I can't remember what it was called, but I got it. And, you know, I sort of did the chili con carne recipe and it was like they would they were just trying to make up for the fact that they hadn't got meat. That was, the, that was what they were trying to do. And yeah. this was their problem throughout. They were doing a cookbook, but it was missing a key ingredient. And that key ingredient was, was meat. You need meat. It, it, it makes everything, everything better. And yet this is, so who's behind this propaganda campaign? Cause it's obviously not accidental. No. And it's very complicated to explain it. <laughs> so it needs, it needs a careful exploration uh, and there are many actors involved and you see many front organizations, but if it's when you look behind all those complicated names and, and different messages, you'll always bump into the same couple of you know, institutions. So it is, it is partly orchestrated. It's not a conspiracy as such that it's not a, 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 you know, a hidden group that secretly controls everything. It's all, it's all in the open. You know, it's, it's clear. It's, it's basically a combination of a couple of factors and, and uh, different Fractions. I'll, come, I'll be more specific in a while, but basically it boils down to to uh, profit and ideology and technocracy coming together. Yeah. And those may be different players; they may overlap to a certain degree. But it's this this alignment of interests that different fractions that find each other and have found a model that for society that they all can endorse because it's interesting for all of them. And they all have their specific reasons. They all have their specific historical trajectories that basically go back to the, light, to the late 1960s, uh, mostly as far as the technocracy is, is concerned, because it starts with the, uh, the idea of the Club of Rome, 
you know, we have this planet and it's, uh, the resources are depleting and we have to change it. Uh, population growth is a problem, resources deplete. And so with the Club of Rome in, 19, in, in 1968, uh, and then the, the limits to growth uh, document that was published a couple of years later, we come up with the simulations where the scientists will have to redesign how we behave. So it's going back to the Club of Rome. And since uh, foundations like the Rockefeller, because the Rockefellers were very close to the Club of Rome, David Rockefeller in particular, the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Resources Institute, uh, and many others have been on that track of trying to make new plans for the planet to yeah. optimize things from a pseudo-scientific point of view, because it's all about top-down simulations that are completely disconnected from the complexities of reality. So that's one, that's one thing. And then maybe it's good to mention also that already in, in 69, there was another report, again, Rockefeller connected, uh, John Rockefeller III in particular, the brother of David Rockefeller. He, he um, set up a commission which was, um, which was uh, initiated on, on the demand also of Richard Nixon at the time. And it was called um, Population Growth and the American Future or something along that line. And if you look at that report, it's very interesting because back then, already in 1969, they came up with the idea that food has to be produced in factories. So they, they clearly say black and white, very specifically, food has to come from factories and we, and we need synthetic, synthetic meat. That was already in the document. So they labeled it already synthetic uh, meat so long before Bill Gates came up with synthetic beef. It was already part of the mindset of those people. So um, for this, for decennia, they have been working on that idea. And now it's coming together in you know, the United Nations Food Systems Summit, where you'll find the same players as back then. Um, on the way, they have also been amplified uh, by um, specifically the Rio conference uh, with Maurice Strong at the time, yeah. who founded UNIP. So that's where you also get the United Nations Environment Program in, in the whole story. And what Strong did was connect the idea of sustainable development, population engineering, and so forth, with profit. Because that was his, he was an oil businessman. So he was in, into oil business and he saw, he, he came up with an idea of private public partnerships and sustainable development, as yes. he called it. Sustainable developments means that you're going to make money <laughs> by greenwashing and, and so forth, essentially. I mean, the ideas are presented as something noble, but in practice, it's always about making profit based on, uh, you know, the, the solutions you come up with. So, so the corporations that are mostly basically polluting the planet are the ones that now offer the solution, <laughs> the same ones. Um, and with food, it's the same thing. And so it came a bit later, but Maurice Strong at the time installed this idea he was very much involved in organizations, again, the same ones, the World Resources Institute, the World Wildlife Fund, the World Economic Forum, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, I could go on. But all those organizations that Strong initiated and connected to this idea of, of um, sustainable development now are the ones that are uh, also shaping the science and the dialogue around meat and, and food. And you'll find them... Uh, reshaped in things like the Global Commons Alliance or the EAT Foundation and so forth, which are now setting the agenda within the United Nations Food Systems Center. So that's, that's, one, that's one main track that connects basically this, this technocracy and the profitable model of sustainable developments. 
And then you have also uh, the influx here of um, ideologists that are more on the side of animal rights. Uh, and um, they have those, uh, those, that vision that they would uh, like to connect our diets also to the concept of transhumanism and effective altruism and that whole cultish idea that lives a lot in Silicon Valley and so forth. So you have all these young billionaires and you know very rich people that invest in their ideologies and they come up and, and the money, so the flux of the money passes through such things as the Open Philanthropy Project and so forth. And, and they have come up with the strategy that we have to replace animal source foods by their analogs, which they create in labs. So food factories, as in, as in the report from the Rockefeller Commission back then. So, so that makes sense <laughs> according to the original plans. Mm. And it also brings in movements that are able to create a, an ideological narrative that becomes popular because what happens as a, as a, as a next factor is that the zeitgeist simply now is, has been, you know, the conditions of possibility to, 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 to go to such extreme visions have been created. Yeah. So there's something within society as well. So it's, it's not only the top-down people that try to engineer things. It's also society as such somehow is, is in a crisis, right? It's, there is a crisis. We feel it, and it, we feel it with many things. We have, um, uh, we face uh, scapegoating mechanisms. We face anxi class anxieties, all kinds of trouble going on. Mm. So all that together is, a, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, I'm boiling it down to a couple of ideas here. It's more complicated than this, but basically this is what it's mostly about. Technocracy, profit, ideology coming together. Yeah. It's, 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 I was, I was going to write a book about 2020. I was going to call it a perfect storm of stupid. Um, and and what, what you described then is it just adds to the mix, the perfect storm of stupid. You've got, yeah, you, animal rights activists. What, am I right in thinking that animal rights activists and, and, and all these kids who think that it's, it's kind of sexy and cool to go vegan, uh, go plant-based are essentially the tools or useful idiots of much, much bigger, um, mm. more sinister organizations. Yes. Yes. Um, it's not the bad way of describing it because, okay, some people are, of course, generally invested in trying to improve animal welfare and all that is, all that makes uh, sense in a way because indeed maybe some things have to be done because not everything is great. But indeed that, movement has been hijacked, co-opted by bigger forces. And it's no coincidence that in, for instance, if you look at the EAT Foundation, we can come back to the EAT Foundation if you wish, but the EAT Foundation is basically the foundation that came up with a planetary health diet. So they want oh. to install that one diet on the planet, <laughs> yes. which is near vegetarian. So we can come back to that if you wish, but on their advisory board, you'll find somebody from BlackRock, for instance, I mean, huge, huge, Money, yeah, uh, BlackRock and, investors. and Vanguard are basically they control the global investment economy. They do, yes. They, they're, they're, they are called the largest shadow bank, so they 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 manage I don't know how many trillions of of assets, yeah. or they at least they can they can influence trillions of assets. So what are they doing on the board of an eat of, of of a foundation that looks into sustainable diets? If it were not because you know money is involved. Uh, and you'll find also like the Eat Foundation is also associated with 
the World Business Council of Sustainable Development. One again, once again, it goes back to Maurice Strong. <clears throat> but today, uh, they're linked with the EAT Foundation through an initiative called Fresh. And within Fresh, you will find all the major food processors, all the big ones, the big multinationals, you'll find them there. So they're, suddenly they're all interested in sustainable plant-based eating. And you see that their marketing is using it as well. So they're coming up with those you know, nice plant-based narratives and their companies are going to follow and save the planet. And then they're producing you know, junk food, yeah. mostly. Yes. Tell me, taking a step back, I mean, I've... Through talking to people like Ivor Cummins, who you must have you must be familiar yes. with, yes. I've become increasingly aware that the narrative about meat is just false, and that actually a, a meat-based diet is it's got most of the nutrients you need, and you you end up well, you 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 produce a different form of fat, don't you? You you it's it's not like the unhealthy visceral fat that you produce; it's it's good fat, um, and and you're you're going to be healthy if you have have a lot of meat. Is that right? Well, it depends on the on your dietary context. Frankly speaking, it's it's meaningless to say that meat is bad. I mean, uh, if you eat deep fried nuggets all day, that's not going to be very good for you. But if you eat, you know, mostly unprocessed red meat or minimally processed red meat, that's that's just fine. It's the food that we've been eating since, you know, since uh, three millions of years, let's say. Uh, so it's. It's in the end, it's unbelievable that we're trying to, to restrict our diets because that's what we're doing. We're restricting our diets and throwing out a category of, of one of the most nutrient dense foods available, you know, because animal source foods have the advantage of having of being very robust um, foods with respect to essential nutrition. So they bring you not only protein because we, we reduce the, the, the conversation very often to the fact that we have to replace protein. It's not about protein. Protein is just one of the factors. It's about essential nutrition. So meat contains vitamins, it contains minerals, it contains all sorts of bioactive com uh, compounds like, uh, like taurine and, and carnosine and carnitine and creatine. People haven't even heard about those, but they do things in our body. I mean, they have bioactive effects. And so if, if you throw up, meat let's say and we're not even talking about the other foods but if you just throw up meat you're just taking up robustness from your diet because to replace all that all that package of nutrients yeah. with, with plants it's complicated and it doesn't work for everybody maybe some people will manage but it doesn't work for everybody especially within vulnerable populations so what is what's really irresponsible here is the fact that we're spreading this and and we're with we i mean uh, those plant-based agendas, they're specifically targeting the youngest generations as well. Mm. The ones that need the nutrients the most. Yes. I, I mean, I think one of the problems that the, the plant-based food movement um, faces is that if you look at the typical person who eats so-called plant-based food, they look not very healthy. They're, they're pasty. They're, they're, they don't look robust. Is that fair? I mean, there are problems with with a vegan diet, are there not? Well, it's again, it's if you choose for a vegan diet, uh, I, I hesitate a bit to, to to generalize it because potentially people can can be okay on it if they really take care of the combinations of foods, if they supplement well. It's just making your life more difficult because you have to mind all those those different you know nutrients that you need, and on top of that, everybody's different. I mean, my nutritional needs are different from yours. Mm. That is because you can have 
certain precursors within the diet that have to be converted in your body to the active components. And those conversion processes are not the same for everybody. Uh, so it could be that what works for some people doesn't work for others because their internal conversion is not all that great. Yeah. Now, animal source foods have the advantage of, of already having converted, because they're animals, right? <laughs> having already converted most of those plant precursors into the bioactive compounds and you have them directly. Yes. If, you have, if your body has to do it, it's not always working that great. So it, in, in many cases, we see it also with, with, with vegan influencers that after a while, they just you know, give up because they feel that their, bo their body is not following. And, and we know that, that most of the people that have uh, gone vegan finally give up after a couple of months, after a year, uh, and only very few continue. And the ones that continue sometimes, they, they run into serious difficulties. What, what, like what? What happens? Well, you have, you have, uh, you, you can have, of course, things like uh, B12 deficiency. Deficiency is a classic one, right? But, and, but the thing with B12 deficiency is that it can take time until you see the problems, which are neurological and, and it's a couple of, you know, series of problems. But it may take time because it's one of those that your body is somehow is, is buffered against. And it's only over time that you start to um, deplete deplete your, your reserves and, and so forth. So for some things, it takes time until you see the effects. But you, have, you can have uh, protein malnutrition, so loss of muscle mass. Um, you, you have iron deficiencies. You, you may have a series of problems because you make, you'll make your, 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 um, uh, you'll make your diet just uh, very often also very um, low in fat, as you experience yourself, right? So you, you, your fat levels go down a lot and, and your protein levels go down a lot. And the effect is, of course, that you're always hungry and you're always... So it's, you, you, can, you can formulate wholesome plant-based diets. It's possible. And some people may do well on it. I mean, I'm not, say, I'm not arguing that it's going to be bad for everybody. It's, it's just, it's a restrictive diet and that's what it is. And, and it's dangerous if you're, if you're in if your needs are, are, are higher, you know, elderly specifically suffer from sarcopenia that really need quality protein and lots of it, um, those people may run into difficulties because we often say that we eat too much protein in the West anyway. Uh, it's not true. We don't eat too much protein in the West anyway. Many people suffer from protein malnutrition because we look at that um, recommended daily allowance, which is set at a minimal level just to avoid lean muscle mass loss. And that minimal level may already be an underestimation, but it is not the optimal level. If you want an optimal level, especially if you're metabolically, um, if you're metabolically already not really healthy, you need higher levels. And that may be double the dose, for instance. So a lot of the, of lot of the Western population, maybe probably maybe even who knows, a majority would benefit from more protein, not less protein. Oh. And, Protein quality is very different if you look at grains and <laughs> lentils versus animal source foods. Yes, tell me, why, why are we so fat in the West? I mean, somebody, somebody put on Twitter the other day a photograph of a beach in the 1970s. Yes. Nobody was fat. You, know, you look at street yes. scenes, nobody is fat. Why, is, why are so many people often clinically obese now? Yeah, and obesity is just one part of the problem because it's more than obesity. It's a... Obesity is a manifestation of a deeper problem, which has to do with hyperinsulinemia and, you know, metaflammation in the body. So it, it is about poor metabolic health. 
And how do you get the poor metabolic health? Well, it's, uh, it's, we don't really know exactly, but it probably has to do with the, the status of the Western diet, which means that it's ultra processed foods. It's lots of refined starches and sugars and vegetable oils and frying and who knows what. And, and then the lack, lack maybe also of essential nutrition. And, and that puts your body in a, in a compromised state and that translates into those metabolic diseases to the point that in the United States, for instance, we have um, only a very small minority of, of a bit more than 10% that is still meta metabolically in, in optimal health. The others are affected. 10%, so, so, so 90%. Yeah, well, a bit more than that, but yes. 90% of the US population is metabolically compromised. Yes, they're not necessarily translating it into disease yet, but but certain parameters on within the body are starting to move into dangerous directions. So it's a matter of time for most of those people. And until something, yeah. I know that, for example, that one of the problems is Ansel Keys that he was responsible for driving diet in a, a negative direction. Who who are the? I mean, tell me a bit about him and and what he did. Well, Ansel Keys is the one that came up um, with with the, li the link between uh, saturated fat and and uh, and heart disease, cardiovascular diseases, and and that was by looking at different countries and seeing that in the countries where you eat most saturated fat, you had more heart disease, and in the ones where you ate little, you. So those studies have now retrospectively been been debated a lot, and and it's not very solid science to start from. But it was extremely influential, and that's because Ansel Keys himself was a. His personality was very dominant. You know, he he was uh, all the time trying to push his ideas and 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 bring them into the mainstream science and the medical uh, associations, and he managed. And over decennia, this has eventually ended up in the the light the late nineteen seventies into the. Uh, the, uh, the dietary revisions that we still see today, so the low-fat guidelines. Yeah, and so we have built a whole vision on the food system, on on uh, the views of a handful of people that were very uh, that were crusading for their for their own ideas and and um, opinions, and that has affected uh, the entire field of of nutrition um, to the point that uh, most of nutrition today is. Uh, dominated by what we call um, nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease, which means observational studies mostly that look at people and try to figure out what are the healthy and unhealthy diets. But it's very poor information usually that comes out of this kind of studies. And it just reinforces its initial message. Because what happens is you have a serious healthy user bias. And that means that because people have been hearing that fat is bad for you, mm. And that goes back to Ansel Keys, but it goes back to the 19th century. We can talk a bit about it because it's very interesting. Um, so this, especially within, within um, the United States, there has been this idea that we have to eat whole grains and, um, and meat is bad. And that idea has been installed in the second half of the 19th century because of certain sectarian Christian movements. Seventh-day Adventists and the Bible Christians and others. They thought that meat was bad. Why? Because it would... Um, it's, um, it would agitate us. It, it creates lust. It was a sexual thing. And it, that's nice because it's, because meat is, you know, it's red and that's the symbolism of meat. You know, the good thing about meat, it's red and it's, uh, vigorous. And, but for those people, it's bad because they invert the values, 
right? That's that's the, <laughs> the typical transvaluation of values. So whatever was good becomes bad, and whatever was bad becomes good. Um, and those Christian uh, sects basically have infiltrated during the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century through people like Kellogg, for instance, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. They have infiltrated the medical discourse. And since in the U.S., they managed to make uh, people believe that we should eat like this to be healthy. Um, and because household economics were also influenced by it. And, and some people from, you know, Kellogg's uh, environment, um, like Lena Cooper, they, start, they, they set up the uh, Dietitian Association in, in, in the States. And so they created this discourse that meat is bad for us and that we have to eat whole grains. And because they advocate for a return to the Garden of Diet, of the, to the Diet of the Garden of Eden, sorry. And that, that was the perfect diet that will, you know, trans right. transfigure because of that, and because of Ansel Keys coming in with his saturated fat story, people believe that eating meat is not healthy. But which people do believe that? Well, mostly the upper middle classes. Basically, those are the people that tend to believe that story because those are the people that are invested in moral eating. So they eat morally. They eat in superior ways to show that they're better people. Yeah. And, and those studies that look at meat eating will find that the higher educated people that go uh, often to the, to the doctor and that check their health regularly, that don't smoke, that eat, uh, um, that eat wholesome diets uh, most of the time, that um, uh, drink less alcohol, that move more. The ones that are just you know, the upper middle classes, basically healthy people, those studies capture that the healthy people eat less meat. And the conclusion that gets reinforced in the nutritional sciences is that Meat is unhealthy because, you know, the lower classes that eat lots yes. of meat are clearly more unhealthy and they blame it on the meat. Yes. So you can use, you can use sophisticated statistical methods to try to, you know, correct for a couple of those things like obesity and, and smoking. And, but it's, you can never correct for the whole lifestyle pattern. Yeah. So it's an artifact and, and we keep on using that artifact and amplifying the artifact because the more studies come out, the more the idea gets established. And in the end, it becomes a truth. Um, but it's 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 so silly because in because meat is an evolutionary food, right? It's a, meat is a food that that has made us human. You know, the, our evolution, our our separation from 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 apes has been because of our diet for a large part. Yes. Because of you know changing our our, our dietary package to more nutrient dense foods has changed our our digestive system. We lost our fermentative capacity, so. Um, and, and we were able to grow bigger brains. So it doesn't make sense to blame, to, to blame red meat for all the trouble we have with the Western diet. It is because of the ultra-processed foods and, and the refined starches and all the other things. That's where the problem is. Yes. Um, I was reminded, I think, of, of listening on, on some podcasts, that there are, um, there are certain, an, uh, certain vegetable products which are good for us, but we couldn't digest naturally ourselves. But when ruminants or whatever eat them we then get access to those otherwise inaccessible vitamins is that right well it's it's one of those those interesting points also in this, also in the sustainability debate because we blame ruminants specifically for being catastrophic and for destroying the planets now ruminants have always been on the planet and their numbers have always been elevated they were just maybe more you know the wild type when we have we have domesticated them but we always had loads of ruminants on the planet in the first place and the fact that that ruminants are uh, are able to upcycle 
indigestible material into quality food is something remarkable. I mean, that is a plus if you want to make a sustainable food system. Now, there are, I mean, we have to take into account certain conditions about, you know, water pollution and we have to do that properly. But if it's properly done, what you're doing is upcycling inedible material, cellulose, you know, grass, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the grass is coming from, you know, sunlight and photosynthesis and rainfall. It's natural input. And, and you can manage to upcycle that into high quality nutrition that otherwise would not be available. So it is a fantastic system to create a sustainable food, uh, a food system with, because also the, those ruminants they will also create, um, they will create topsoil, right? They will, they will. It's not only that they just are, are machines that convert, you know, grass into food. At the same time, they also um, are needed to manage the grasslands and to keep them in a good shape and in a good health. Yeah. Um, they, they can be they can be combined with crop agriculture, so you get synergistic effects. So they are an absolute essential part of a, of a sustainable food system. And yet we're trying to take them out and replace them with beyond meats and impossible foods, yes. because those companies are specifically aiming at taking out all of the cattle industry. That's their that's their final agenda, and they they're open. You know, they clearly state we want to take out the cattle industry. By 2030 uh, or 2035, uh, they want to get rid of it, and they want to substitute whatever comes from that with, you know, whatever they produce. Yes. Well, tell me about this. Um, you obviously know the economics of it. Uh, one of the arguments I hear against meat is that there is no way once the once the, the poorer populations acquire a taste for meat that there is enough space on the planet to be able to satisfy their meat desire therefore we must we must wean ourselves off meat because it's unsustainable does that argument have merit well that goes back to the club of rome that's that's, that's a very Malthusian idea that has been amplified in the club of rome uh, documents and and since is has always been on the background it's just that it gets reused again nowadays. Um, now, I don't know how much meat we can produce on this planet. It's very difficult to simulate that. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm opposing all those, you know, modelers that are calculating how much we can produce based on, you know, this, this model systems they have, because what they do is, um, they, they're using this very simplistic metrics, basically. They're using things like, you know, CO2 equivalents per kilogram of meat. Uh, and they use, you know, they, they, they're working with metrics. It's interesting that many of you know, the scientists that are now working most loudly on, on the food system uh, are, have an economic background. So they look at, at reality as if it were a spreadsheet and, and, and they use the metrics and they, and they mobile and they, but you cannot do that. It's just, reality is just too complex. It's too contextual. It's too specific. Uh, the food you can produce in a certain area is not the food that you optimally produce in another area. It's a patchwork. It's, um, you can just cannot do that. And I don't think it's possible to have to, to know how much meat we can produce in a sustainable way based on those simulations. That's, yes. that's the hubris that we saw in the Club of Rome. Uh, you know, you cannot calculate that in th this manner. What you can do is try to fix bottom up the, the, the systems that are not working well or that are polluting indeed. If you see there is a problem with uh, this disturbance of the, of the nitrogen cycle or, or anything else, uh, Sorry, I'm putting in my battery. <laughs> right. uh, or if you see that there's water pollution and or 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 there are low 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 uh, systems with low efficiency, you can fix those systems, and then you will see where we end up with. 
and and how, if and and how we organize. So you have the time, and you have the, you can you can um, robustly move towards better systems. If you're gonna if you're gonna impose a top-down vision on 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 the whole entire global food system, like a planetary health diet from the Eat yeah. Foundation, you're just gonna mess with a very complex system. Now, this, the thing we know about complex systems is if, if you mess with a system, the system kicks back and you don't know how it will kick back. It's very unpredictable. Messing with system is asking for trouble. Unless you do it carefully, you tinker with the system a bit, you try to improve it. And because we're talking about food security, we're talking about uh, nutritional security, it can be a catastrophe if we, if we imply the, the, their strategies, right? Yes, I see that. I mean, like dumping GM mosquitoes on the Everglades, say. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Is this this interventions coming from <laughs> somebody woke up with an idea and we're going to implement it? It's it's dangerous. I think yes. it's dangerous, and I think we should we should start bottom up by making our system more resilient and improving whatever is not working well with the best of the science we have, but rationally, you know, with with carefully, uh, with ambition. I'm not saying we have to keep the status quo either because we have to face those challenges. I mean, population is growing, that's putting pressure. We need to take it into account, but we have to do it um, carefully so that we don't end up with a complete disaster or some you know, black swans appearing at some point in time. Um, yes. But the same is valid for the crop agriculture. I mean, this, this is the ridiculous part. It's, they see it as a binary thing where the animals are the problem. I mean, look at how avocados are produced sometimes or, or you know, the, some of the nuts uh, being very water intensive. Uh, and, and still the Eat Lancet diet, the Pantera Health diet, is arguing for, I don't know how much uh, multiplication of the amount of nuts we eat. That is, is enormous. Yes. But that will have its own repercussions on the way we produce things. So one thing is taking out the animals. The other thing is replacing them with something else. And what you replace them with will have its own effects. So you can have those beyond burgers, but those beyond burgers are depending on, on those vast cultures of, of peas that need to be collected to have the pea protein extract that they use to make their burgers with. So uh -huh. How are they going to do that? Well, that will need also, you know, mega cultures and, and fertilizers and, and massive, massive production systems that will most likely also have a, an impact on biodiversity and on, on so many other things. Yes, the mention of pea protein reminds me of a, a propaganda documentary that, that briefly persuaded me that the veganism was good called Game Changers. All right. Have you seen it? I, I saw, saw parts of it. I cannot stomach the whole thing. It's, it's, in, it's, it's pure propaganda. I mean, but it's an interesting one uh, because, again, what you see in Game Changer is that they're trying to, to sell you this idea that you can have the same benefits from the plants than you get from the meat. And they're using specifically also the athletic performances, right? Yes. So they're, they're using- And sexual, and sexual performance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that, that, that's, because, that's because meat comes with these connotations of, of health and, and, and strength that are ancient. They go back to the beginning of times because it's such a valuable food. And that's, you know, it's hunter-gatherers have, has, you know, we have been hunter-gatherers for 99% of our time on, on the planet, right? So yeah. that's, that's in our blueprint. And, and, and um, since the 19th century already, because we have some interesting, interesting texts from, from back then already, they tried to, to invert that by saying that vegetarian swimmers and cyclists, we find texts like this back, back in the 19th century. 
What produced by Seven Day Adventists, by any chance? Well, yes, or the follow-up mean, or or those societies that come from the first vegetarian societies, which were created by the Bible Christians, yes. Yes. Um, And they were using these images of somebody that did the Tour de France on a plant-based diet, and he was better than the ones that ate meat, you see? So they're trying to to invert the idea that meat is the one, the, the thing that makes you makes you stronger and they and they and why are they doing this 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 is strategic because they know very well that this is the weak point in their in their debate right they know that if you take out the meat it's nutritionally and not all that so they want it and people people associate it with you know those ancient connotations and they want to attack those and make people believe that it's not true they have been doing that since you know since the beginning of the vegetarian societies and game changer is just a modern version of it it's right. not all that revolutionary as a movie it's just recycling the old idea of the, the the first vegetarian societies that were trying to sell the same message interesting interesting so where um do we eat as much meat as our ancestors did it depends who you're asking but it's as a, as a western society no clearly not we uh we have some estimates but it's difficult you see because the paleolithic era is is a is a vast era it's the paleolithic is an enormous amount of time and um, and it's also uh, we don't have good information about it. You know, it's, we have we have some information and we try to reconstruct, uh, but it's it's still a a big question mark. So we don't books from that period. Sorry, not much literature from that period. No, no, exactly no, and and so we have to dig. You know, we have to we have to work and, and dig up dig into the information and reconstruct and but what we know from hunter gatherers for instance is that hunter gatherers tend to eat much more meat than we eat in the west uh, specifically red meat um, so most likely we, they were eating much more meat than we're eating today but mm. I mean much more meat um, and interestingly you will not find the, the diseases of modernity in those people you will not find the diseases of civilization in the hunter gatherers even though they eat more meat so to blame it on on the meat is a bit peculiar um, but what we do know is that in in the in the west we have information from you know the united states for instance where we see that the consumption of red meat in the beginning of the 20th century um, is is more or less what we were were eating uh, today it just they had a peak. Um, they had a peak uh, up to the the nineteen seventies, more or less, and then it went down right. again. And that's that's when the advice came in. That's when we heard this advice that you know we should eat less fat and cholesterol and meat, and then, then it went down, and it was replaced by poultry. So people didn't eat less meat, but it was replaced by poultry. Right. Does does poultry have the same nutritional value as red meat? Are we are we missing out by going going off red meat? Well, red meat has is uh, is is interesting for for a number of reasons that are, you know, there are a couple of nutrients there that are more difficult to obtain from from the poultry, specifically if you talk about iron or maybe also some of the long chain omega three fatty acids uh, that you can obtain specifically also from from uh, grass fed beef, but you can also obtain from fish if you want. I mean, there are different ways of of and that's that's my that's my issue with the, with the planetary health diet as well they propose you one diet and that's that's very united nations like you know they propose you one thing that covers everything else you know they they yeah. reduce diversity and cultural legacies and traditions into the one model that they want to impose everywhere you see it also with religion religion and with you know one thing for the planet 
Um, so what I want to say is that there are many solutions to come to wholesome diets. If you don't want to eat lots of red meat, that's fine. There are other ways to get your nutrition. I mean, you yes. can. You, there are things like eggs and fish and, and dairy, and, and they're all very good foods. Um, you can, according to your preferences, according to your cultural background, according to your uh, availability, you can have different solutions. We have invaded the planet. We have went in, into all kinds of different ecosystems like the Inuit that have their very specific diet, they're perfectly healthy people before the West came in. So there are a zillion solutions to come to healthy diets. Yeah. Red meat is a, is a nice food because it's, you know, it's just very interesting nutritionally. You, I, I suppose what I'm angling for is, is, you know, when I've had red meat two nights in a row and my, and I, I say, Oh, I fancy a steak tonight. Um, and my wife says, Oh no, we've had too much red meat recently. Um, who's right. Well, everybody is right as long as you like it and as long as you feel good with it. I mean, <laughs> there's no right and wrong, and that's the problem. We're making it a moral discussion. Um, if you feel like eating your steak, have your steak. <laughs> I'll tell you what I get a real craving for quite every now and again, yeah. like, like a savage craving, lamb's yes, yes. liver. Sometimes I really need lamb's liver. Why is that? Right. Lamb's liver is, 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 a, is a nutrient bomb. It, it could be, I mean, I can, I can hardly, I mean, it's difficult to, to address your case if I don't have more specifics, but what we do know is that if your body craves food, it yeah. could indicate that you're missing out on some of the nutrients. And because uh -huh. liver is so nutrient dense, uh, it could be that you're just looking for something there that your body is actually you know, trying to recover. We see that, we know that from animal studies that animals will go to those foods that cover what they're missing. Uh, so, so animals nicely, if they're giving choice, of course, if you force them with a certain you know, feed and it's, it's not working. But if you leave them um, the choice, they will go for those foods that cover their needs. So they will eat more or less, more or less of certain foods if it's, you know, overshooting a bit of the ones that are toxic for them or if they need a bit more of this nutrient, they will go to that. So they, they adjust and it's a normal thing. I mean, we're biological organisms. We look for the nutrients we need. And because liver is just a, a very, it's one of the most, maybe the nutrient, the most nutrient dense food that we can find. Is it? That's yeah. why. So I'm. So my body is sensible. It's actually yeah. making the right decision for me. Absolutely. If you, I mean, if you, if you let your body govern your food choices, you'll get pretty far. I think it's when you start overruling it with, with those preconceptions that are you know installed in your mind that you maybe start messing around with, because after the dietary goals for Americans have been published and the low fat craze stepped in, yeah, um, we have we come we came up with all sorts of functional foods, you know, low fat and supplemented with those vitamins. But in the end, public health is going down year by year. And we've talked about it before. Public health is getting worse with the year, despite the fact that we're, we have never seen so, so much uh, functionally designed foods on the market. Mm. Right. So we, we're going for those labels and we're buying those, you know, breakfast cereals that claim to be healthy for you, but we're not eating them because we feel that they are doing as well with eating them because the label says it's good for us. Yes. Now I, I I've noticed a, a sort of parallel as well as the war on meat, there's a sort of war on dairy and, and, and cheese, cheese, which strikes me as a kind of what's not to like about cheese. I love cheese. What do you, 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 you do you have cheese where you come from in, in Belgium? You do. <laughs> it's, more sure, of a, yes. it's more of a French <laughs> thing, isn't it? But, but, but I imagine you've got a few cheeses as well, but, do, yes. but, I like a cheese. I like, I like lots of cheese. And 
but there's so much now that you hear that oh no dairy cheese i uh, you know cut cheese out it's it, it'll make you so much better is that true for health reasons yeah it's in, it's the same it's the same narrative that just is just shifting it's in the beginning i've seen that also within the livestock sector and the people within the sector you know the industries and the federations and the farmers um when the whole red meat story anti red meat story started to uh, establish itself in in you know in, in in media and in policy um the dairy players were not all that worried about it because our red meat and still the vegetarians will still eat the dairy and then it's fine. I mean, the dairy is going to be fine because vegetarians yeah. still have dairy. But what they underestimated is that the agendas are not aiming at red meat only. They're taking red meat, they're singling red meat uh, out because it's the most symbolic thing to do. It's the one that has to fall first. You know, it's the first domino thing mm. that has to fall. The others will follow. We, we have a clear statement from... Um, uh, the, the CEO of Impossible Foods. So he said that the goal of their company is to take out uh, the cattle industry. So that means red meat and dairy by 2030 or 35. I don't know. So that's and but then he says that once that is done, the the pork industry and the poultry industry will follow. So they want to take out all animal agriculture. It's just that the focus on red meat uh, is the one that is the most effective. Yeah, because it comes with all those. Uh, you know, it's again, it's red. You know, it's red, it's it's yeah, yeah. bloody. It's 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 has mm. no, It's just more interesting. They can connect it to the methane, and that's because they start to connect it to the methane issue. Uh, dairy is is having the same trouble. So they managed to connect dairy already to red meat because of that uh, perspective, and then the rest will follow once they come up with the imitations. You know, with the lab meat and the, the has, has meat lab meat got any dairy. chance of taking off? I mean, it looks disgusting and it's expensive to produce. Why, why would you? It's well, <laughs> it, because that's that's what they want to achieve, right? It's the it's again, it's this, this idea that if you can if you can get rid of animals and you can make foods in factories, it's interesting for certain players. Whether it's feasible or not, let's come back to that in a minute. But the idea is that they want to take out the animals and replace it with their food. Why is that interesting? Because it's patented, because it's centralized, because you don't depend on, on fluctuating complicated factors that are external and have to do with farmers and animal welfare. And so you can get rid of all those things. You make it based on, on bioreactors, it's predictable uh, and so forth. So if you manage to do that, you control the food supply system. It's as simple as that. Investors love it. Uh, corporations love it. The, 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 the great architects of the great transitions, they love it. And it's, it's the perfect science fiction idea for the future, and it seems to become reality. Now, whether it's feasible is another story. Of, a lot of it, of course, because investors are involved, depends on creating that bubble and creating, you know. Yes. So they, they have been pushing the story. Um, I've been hearing about cultured meat since a long time, you know, the, Especially in Belgium, we uh, we hear a lot about it because one of the pioneers is in, is, uh, is coming from the Netherlands, and so he came up with it uh, a while ago. And he has always been saying, "In five years, we have it on the market." So I've been hearing this: "In five years, we have it on the market." Since a long time now, yeah, it's not there yet. We have seen the Singapore uh, the Singapore launch uh, of that cultured uh, chicken thing, uh, but it's. You know, it's hyped, I think, just for in, for investment reasons. It's also extremely difficult to do. It's, um, 
and that's why you see that it's, it's very typical that all the imitation foods are always uh, nuggets or burgers or amorphous things that you can hide in a bun or you can, you yeah. can put sauce on it and you don't really see it, right? It doesn't have a specific, you know, texture or it also doesn't have a specific taste because they say it, it tastes like beef or it tastes like what, whatever animal food, but it, it really doesn't because it's just the sauces that you taste and the, it's just all covered up and you don't, you don't actually, you're not confronted with the food as such. And there's yeah. a reason for that. It's just because they just cannot do the rest. They cannot come up with a, with a, a culture T-bone steak or something. Mm-hmm. They can't. It's just too difficult. The marbling of the, in the fat and, and you know, the whole mouthfeel and the complicated yes. aromas and the complicated nutritional composition. They just can't do that. What they can do maybe if, and if it will become cost effective, because I'm far from being convinced that it's possible, if it can become energy efficient and so on and so on, maybe they could come up with those, you know, culture tissues that are something that you can integrate in the fast food culture. But it's a difference with coming up with, uh, you know, uh, uh, beef cheeks uh, <laughs> or, or T-bone steaks or, yes. you know, whatever. It's, it, it's not, also, it doesn't look like it and it's not, it's, go ahead. Do you not think there is something, I mean, let's cut to the chase here. The architects of the great transition, as you call them. Yep. There are some very, very dark forces in a very narrow elite who I think arguably despise us or, or, or view, view their fellow humans as no better than cattle. They want us to eat insects, we've seen from the World Economic Forum. They're against everything that we've achieved. And I, 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 one of the things that saddens me talking about meat is I think about animal husbandry and how generation on generation has worked out how to work with animals, how to breed them for their maximum, you know, to, to, to produce more meat, better meat, more flavored meat, hanging meat, all the different techniques, butchery, all these things, which are, which are obviously the vegetarians think, oh, it, it involves animal cruelty. But I think most farmers, serious farmers, I mean, not factory farmers maybe, but farmers love their their animals. There is, there is a, you know, you look at, look at a shepherd and his sheep or sheep farmer and his sheep or a cattle farmer that they, they look after them. They, they are their livelihood. Do you think that ultimately this is about destroying our civilization, destroying the things that we hold dear and making us weak? For example, the vegan diet. If you, if you wanted, if you wanted to depopulate the planet, what better way than to, to, to encourage everyone to go vegan? Yeah, well, I don't think it's about destroying the population, but it's certainly destructive. Uh, and what you're saying is uh, is absolutely true. I mean, the, the the whole legacy of of you know animal husbandry is is extremely rich. You know, it's 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 a wonderful legacy. It, it goes back uh, to ancient times, and it's uh, and people have invested so much of their uh, their, their lives into that, and their it's, people that are into animal husbandry tend to be very passionate people. Yeah, and and it becomes it becomes problematic when those people start to be vilified, right? So if we're vilifying the people that are providing us with our foods, and it's it's also it's so urban as well. It's so Western. It's a typically Western urban uh, narrative coming from deconnected people, right? You cannot be connected to the food system and, and come up with these ideas. You can only do that if you don't know about food. Uh, it's, 
is because that it's very easy. Of course, if you get you get paid, you go to the shop, you buy your things, you go back home, you prepare whatever you bought in 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 the supermarket. That's easy. But those farmers are the ones that are day enough. I mean, they're they're hard workers. They yeah. they spend all their time and their energy in producing the food that we as urbanites are are just buying in the shop. And instead of being grateful for that, what they usually get is is despise, and that's of course very frustrating. And the, and the problem here is that farmers are are the, the situation for farmers is becoming so difficult that the new generations are not wanting to continue the the legacy of their yes. of, of their ancestors because it's difficult and it's, there's too much pressure. You're not a, there's no appreciation, um, so they're dropping out. And the danger here is that the way back will be very difficult. If we start to understand that the food factory system is not is is quite of is, is a bit of a problem, how are we going to return to the original system? It will be difficult. Yes. So we'll we'll be trapped into something that is almost irreversible. And that's the that's the absolute danger here. Before you know it, the UK can become, as one of your policymakers once said, it can become a new Singapore. You know, it can become a place for 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 financial transactions and for services depending on food imports yes or on on maybe on factory produced foods now that's very fragile if something happens with the food supply that you're yeah. you know the, the food supply input if something happens because of a pandemic or because of a financial crisis or because of a, of a, who knows what a geopolitical effect <laughs> it's over there's no food yes Believe so the me, only, the, the only <laughs> I, I feel this. <laughs> yeah, it's it would be the, the worst idea of all to to uh, get rid of all your farming and just depend on imports and and gamble that you'll be doing well because of you know your financial uh, affairs and, yeah, and right. so forth. If the, if that crashes, you don't have. <laughs> there's no food. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, you 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 I know travel the world. Or used to, and when we're allowed to travel the world, talking about this thing, are people waking up? Is there any resistance? Yeah, well, people talk about big meat. Well, there are, of course, there are corporations like, like uh, you know, the, the Tyson and, and so forth, which, by the way, are also very interested into the plant-based foods. They want to gamble both sides. Yeah. Uh, but they talk about big meat and about you know the lobbying of big meat. Mostly, what I see is farmer federations that are. Uh, quite worried and quite anxious and don't know what to do. Uh, there's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of, um, they feel overpowered. Uh, they feel a bit desperate, of course, because you know there's never anything positive about farming. Um, so the resistance, I don't know where it's supposed to be situated. I see now that people start to wake up, especially because the United Nations Food System Summit is coming up, which will heavily impact on, on the future of food. Uh, and now they start to understand that it's serious because they, what, what we see is that in the United Nations Food System Summit, the action track two, which is on sustainable diets, is chaired by the founder of the EAT Foundation, which is a World Economic Forum global leader, young global leader. And within the track, all the players within that track are either linked to the EAT Foundation or they are uh, linked to the World Resources Institute and so forth. So the whole typical network of, of uh, you know the sustainable development players and Davos or they are from animal rights organizations, such as the Good Food Institute, which is, you know, um, and animal rights movements uh, through the 50 by 40 uh, foundation and so forth. 
So the whole track is dominated by EAT and animal rights activists and investors behind that. And they're going to come up with policy documents or policy ideas for, for, for the future. So we have the COP coming up in a while in Glasgow. In Glasgow, yeah. Um, so all those summits will come up with new policy documents. We see what's happening also within the European Commission and, and the Farm to Fork strategy. So they come up with new documents and policies. And, and those will shape the future of food for decades to come. It will be very difficult to change it, and if, you know, to, to revert or to change things after it's black and white on paper and installed in policies. And now I think some people start to understand that and trying to act, but I don't know what is still possible and what can still be effective. But whatever we've seen with the low fat guidelines that we've talked about before is gonna be overshadowed with what we will see uh, with respect to animal agriculture in, in those policy documents and in those. Um, uh, uh, apart from we'll kill ourselves now, what, what can we do? Well, it's, I don't want to over-dramatize it either. I mean, I think it's not, one thing is what is being said. And, uh, and I know that already we see, a, we see the first signs. We already see that in some countries, you know, they're recently, I think it was yesterday or before yesterday that the French Minister of Ecological Transition, you know, from the technocrat Macron government is uh, already uh, saying that she will install one vegetarian meal uh, a week in the schools. Now that's still very light. Uh, so there, but you see that the first signs are. Yeah, yeah. So um, you see in Barcelona and in Milan, they're doing, because they belong to the C40 Cities Initiative, they're also uh, following the EAT Foundation and they want to change public meals. So you see that that is happening, right? It's, it's light, it's not very intense at the moment, but who knows where it will end. Um, but yet, it's one thing is what they say, what they claim, you know, that we're going to have a collapse of the dairy industry in a decade, or uh, that we uh, will have only self-factured meats by 2000. They can claim that. It's not necessarily what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Um, secondly, I think it's, uh, it is worrying, though, because it can do damage such as um, affecting uh, farming and, and undermining or eroding farming, as we know it, um, by making our diets even worse, because all the imitations are basically even more ultra-processed food than we're already mm -hmm. consuming. Uh, so the damage, and, and especially also the younger people and how they will, in, in their climate anxiety, how they will be potentially undernourished by, by giving up some of the... You know, yeah nutrient-dense food. So those things can happen and they are worrisome. How can we how can we act? Well, I don't have the solutions. I identified the problem. I'm not the one that is designing the policies, but I think that we really sh seriously should try to, as, you know, as the masses, as the public here, we should seriously consider investing our food money, our budget, our, our, our weekly food budget into those suppliers that are... Um, uh, are the ones that are the robust ones and the sincere ones and the, and the ones that are really uh, connected to, to your local farmers and to your uh, to the foods that we that we're producing on a wholesome basis within our own territories. Yes. Uh, so instead of going globally by into a centralized food supply system dominated by corporations, yeah. I would say you should massively drop those people, <laughs> yeah. not buy any of their products, and put that money that we usually spend on the rubbish we, all, we buy into um, the food from our local butchers, fishermen, grocery shops, 
that come from you know farmer markets, whatever's possible. Yes, it may That's... be more expensive. Not necessarily so, though. It may be more expensive, but it's really worth it because you also pay for your health, you pay for your future, and you pay for you pay for the next generations as well. That's a really nice positive way to end. I think. Um, I hope you'll come back on the podcast again because you've been a great guest. Oh, yeah. And and thank you for that. I think it's an important message to get out. May I remind everyone, um, uh, these podcasts, freedom isn't free. Um, do please remember to support me on Patreon, Subscribestar, or via my website, dellingpoleworld.com, where you can buy a special friend badge and things. Um, Frederick Loire, thank you so much. And, and really good luck with your campaign. It's been great talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.